Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, very short housekeeping here. Many things happening in the news. The Mueller report just came in. I think I'll do a podcast on this when there's real clarity around it. I'll get some suitable scholar on. So um, I will defer that for the moment and just introduce today's guest. Today I'm speaking with Roger McNamee. Roger has been a Silicon Valley investor for 35 years. He has co-founded successful venture funds, including Elevation, where he's partnered with U2's Bono as a co-founder. He holds a BA from Yale and an MBA from the Tuck Business School at Dartmouth. But of relevance today is that he was an advisor to Mark Zuckerberg uh, very early on and helped recruit Sheryl Sandberg to Facebook. And he is now a very energetic critic of the company and of many of these platforms, Google, Amazon, Facebook, etc. We focus on Facebook in particular. We talk about Google to some degree. But this conversation is a very deep look at all that is going wrong with digital media and how it is subverting democracy, making it harder and harder to make sense to one another. It's a growing problem that I've discussed many times on the podcast, but today's episode is an unusually deep dive. So now, without further delay, I bring you Roger McNamee. I am here with Roger McNamee. Roger, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, Sam, what an honor to be here. So I, I got connected to you through Tristan Harris, who, uh, who's been on the podcast and who many people know has been um, dubbed the conscience of Silicon Valley. And, uh, but I also realize another podcast guest who I also got through Tristan is another one of your partners in crime, Rene DiResta, who gave us a fairly harrowing tour of the um, Russian influence into our lives through social media and other hacking efforts. So you know both of those people, and they have they really have been allied with you in your efforts to deal with the problem that we're about to talk about, which is just what is happening on our social media platforms with bad incentives and arguably unethical business models so as to all too reliably corrupt our public conversation and you know, very likely undermine our democracy. So let, let's just just start with your background in tech and how is it that you come to have an opinion yeah. and, and knowledge to back it up on, on this particular problem? Yeah. So, Sam, I began my career in the tech world professionally in 1982. And when I, when I was going back to college in 1978, I dropped out for a period of time. My brother had given me a Texas Instruments speak and spell, you know, the toy for teaching kids how to spell. Mm. And it was brand new that year. And he hands it to me in Christmas time, 1978, and says, you know, if they can make this thing talk with a display and keyboard, you're going to be able to carry around all your personal information, a device you can hold in your hand. And it probably won't take that long. So this is one year after the Apple II, three years before the IBM PC, and I think roughly 17 or 18 years before the Palm Pilot. He planted that seed in my head. And I couldn't get rid of it. And I spent four years trying to figure out how to become an engineer, discovered I was just terrible at it. Mm. And so I got a job being a research analyst covering the technology industry. And I arrived in Silicon Valley 
just before the personal computer industry started. And that was one of those moments of just pure dumb luck that can make a career in a lifetime. And in my case, it did both. So I start there in 1982. I follow the technology industry for a long, long period of time. And I do this, I, like Zelig, I just wound up in the right place at the right time a lot of different moments. Beginning in the mutual fund business in Baltimore at Tiro Price, but covering tech, traveling around with the, the, the computer industry as it formed. Then starting a firm inside Kleiner Perkins Caulfield & Byers, the venture capital firm in 1991. So I was actually in their office when the internet thing happened. So the day Mark Andreessen brought Netscape in, the day that Jeff Bezos brought in Amazon, the day that Larry and Sergey brought in Google, those were all things that I got to observe. I wasn't the person who did them, but I was there when it happened. And that was, if you're an analyst, that's a perfect situation. Right. And so in 2006, I had been, been in the business 24 years, and I get a phone call from the chief privacy officer at Facebook saying, my boss has got a crisis and he needs to talk to somebody independent. Can you help? And so Mark came by my office that day and he was 22. The company was only two years old. It's about a year after the end of the storyline from social network. Company is only available to high school students and college students with an authenticated email address. And there's no news feed yet. It's really early on. And he comes in my office and I say to him, Mark, you and I don't know each other. I'm 50, you're 22. I need to give you two minutes of context for why I'm taking this meeting. And I said, if it hasn't already happened, either Microsoft or Yahoo is going to offer a billion dollars for Facebook. Keep in mind, the company had nine million in revenues before that, so a billion was huge. And I said, everybody you know, your mother and father, your board of directors, your management team, everybody's going to tell you to take the money. They're all going to tell you you can do it again, that with 650 million bucks at age 22, you can change the world. And I just want you to know, I believe that Facebook, because of authenticated identity and control of privacy, is going to be the first really successful social product, and that you can build a social network that will be more important than Google is today. So keep in mind, it's 2006. So Google's already very successful, but obviously nothing like what it is today. And I said, they will tell you you can do it again, but in my experience, nobody ever does. And so I just want you to know, I think what you have here is, is unique, it's cool, and I hope you'll pursue it. What followed, Sam, was the most painful five minutes of my entire life. You have to imagine a room that is totally soundproof because it was a video game lounge inside our office. And this young man is sitting there pantomiming thinker poses. At the first one-minute mark, I'm thinking... Wow, he's really listening. This is like, you know, he's showing me respect. The two-minute mark, I'm going, this is really weird. At three minutes, I'm starting to dig holes in the furniture. At four minutes, I'm literally ready to scream. And then finally, he relaxes. And he goes, you won't believe this, but I'm here because the thing you just described, that's what just happened. That mm -hmm. is why I'm here. And so that began a three-year period where somehow I was one of his advisors. And my experience with him, Sam, was, it was fantastic. He was the perfect mentee in the sense that he reached out to me on issues where he was open to ideas. He always followed through. I never saw any of the antisocial behavior that was in the movie. Our, you know, I didn't have a social relationship with him. It was purely business. And, but for three years, it was really rich. And I saw him 
almost every week. Mm. And the key thing that I did in addition to help him get through the first problem, because he didn't want to sell the company when he came into my office, but he was really afraid of disappointing everybody. And I helped him figure out how to do that. And then he needed to switch out his management team. So I helped him do that. And the key person I helped bring in was Sheryl Sandberg. And so you have to imagine the context for this thing is I'm a lifelong technology optimist. And I grew up in the era, I'm the same age as, as Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. So I grew up in the era where technology was something that made people's lives better and that we were all committed to changing the world in kind of a sort of hippie libertarian value system. And Mark appeared to me to be different from the other entrepreneurs. You know, I was not a fan of the PayPal Mafia's approach, and I had, had consciously turned down some things where I really was philosophically out of line with the, with the management teams. And, you know, I look at Peter Thiel and, and Elon Musk and Reid Hoffman as incredibly brilliant people who had ideas that transformed tech and transformed the world. And but philosophically, I come from a different place. And so I wasn't so comfortable with them. But Mark seemed to be different. And Cheryl, I thought, was different. And, you know, so what winds up happening is I retired from the investment business because it turned out that I guess I'd gotten past my, my philosophical sell-by date, that I was seeing too many businesses with strategies that I just couldn't sign up for, things that I knew would be successful, things like Uber and Spotify, where you know, they delivered a lot of value to the, the customer, but only by causing some harm to other people in the chain. And I wasn't good with that. And sadly, I wasn't paying close attention to Facebook. I stopped being a, a mentor to Mark in 2009. So I wasn't around when the business model formed in 2011, 12, and 13. And I did a crappy analytical job. I just missed the development of the persuasive technology that re mm. and the manipulative actions that really came to dominate things. So in 2016, I'm, at, I'm retired from the business. I'm still a fanboy. I really love Facebook. But all of a sudden, I start to see a series of things that tell me there's something really wrong. And that's what got me going. So between January 2016 and October, I saw election issues in the Democratic primary and in Brexit, where it was clear that Facebook had an influence that was really negative because it gave an advantage to inflammatory and hostile messages. And then I saw civil rights violations, a corporation that used the Facebook ad tools to scrape data on anybody who expressed interest in Black Lives Matter. And they sold that to police departments mm. in violation of the Fourth Amendment. And then housing and urban development. The government agency cited Facebook for ad tools that allowed violations of the Fair Housing Act, the very thing that they ju Facebook just settled the civil litigation on in, in the past week. And so you have civil rights violations, you see election things, and I'm freaked out. And I write an op-ed for Recode. And instead of publishing, I sent it to Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg on October 30th of 2016, so nine days before the election. and. It basically says, I'm really, really concerned that Facebook's business model and algorithms allow bad actors to harm innocent people. It's a two-page, single-spaced essay. It was meant to be an op-ed, so it's more emotional than I wish. If I'd had a chance to do it again, I would have rewritten it for them. 
but I wanted to get it in their hands because I was really afraid the company was the victim of essentially well-intended strategies producing unintended consequences. And that's what led to it. And they got right back to me. Both of them did. They were incredibly polite, but also dismissive. They treated it like a public relations problem. Mm-hmm. But they hand me off to Dan Rose, who was one of the most senior people at Facebook and a good friend of mine. And they said, well, Dan will work with you. And he's just saying to me, Roger, we're a platform, right? The law says we're not responsible for what third parties do because we're not a media company. And so we, Dan and I talk numerous times, and then the election happens. And I just go completely ape. And I'm, I'm literally the morning after the election, I'm screaming at him that the Russians have tipped the election using Facebook. And he's going, no, no, we're cool because Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act says we're a platform. We're not responsible for third parties. I'm going, Mm -hmm. dude, you're in a trust business. I mean, I'm an investor. I'm your friend. I'm not trying to be hostile here. I'm trying to save you from, like, killing this business. That you got to do what Johnson & Johnson did when that guy put poison in bottles of Tylenol in 1982 in Chicago which is they took every bottle of Tylenol off the shelf until they could invent and deploy tamper-proof packaging. They defended their customers. Even though they didn't put the poison in, they weren't technically responsible. And I thought Facebook could convert a potential disaster into a winning situation by mm. opening up to the investigators and working with their, the people who used the product to understand what had happened. And for three months, I begged them to do this. and. Finally, I realized they weren't just never going to take it seriously. And that's when I went looking for, you know, like I didn't have any data. I mean, Stan, you know how hard this is when you're talking to really, really smart technical people. You got to have a lot of data. And all I had was 35 years of spider sense. And I went shopping for friends. And that's when I met Tristan Harris. And that changed everything because I was looking at this as an issue of civil rights and an issue of democracy. Mm. And Tristan's on 60 Minutes, and he's talking about brain hacking and the use of manipulative techniques, persuasive technology to manipulate attention and create habits that become addictions, and then how that makes people vulnerable and how filter bubbles can be used to create enormous economic value, but at the same time, increase polarization and undermine democracy. And I had a chance to interview him on... Bloomberg a couple days after the 60 Minutes thing. And I call him up immediately after the show's done and go, dude, do you need a wingman? Because I'm convinced he's like the messiah of this thing. He's the guy who gets it. And I thought, well, maybe I can help him get the message out. And so that's how we came together. Mm. So that was April 2017. And we literally both dropped everything we were doing and committed ourselves to seeing if we could stimulate a conversation. And it was really clear we were going to focus on public health because I was, I was certain that Tristan's idea was the root cause of the problem. And so that's what we went out to do. And the hilarious thing was, it, he may have told you this, but it began with going to the TED conference. Eli Pariser, the man who identified filter bubbles and wrote the amazing book about that, got yeah. Tristan onto the schedule of the, of the TED conference two weeks before the conference itself. It was amazing what he did. Actually, it was Chris Anderson got in touch with me having heard Tristan on this podcast a few weeks before the the TED conference, and that was also 
part of the story. It was oh, outstanding. Well, thank yeah. you for that. Okay, yeah. I, so I, I I did not know that piece of it. No, it was, but it thank was you. Su- super gratifying to see that effect because oh you know, my god, I, I wanted Tristan's voice amplified. Okay, well, so then we owe it to you. So I look at this as as. So it may, that's really funny because it, then that's perfect. That explains a lot of things. So anyway, we go to the TED conference, right? We're thinking there's a thousand people there. We're going to make this thing a big story overnight, right? We're going to solve this two weeks from the day we meet. We go to TED, right? He gives us impassioned thing. And you've seen the, you've seen the TED talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, we go around to collect business cards. I think we came out of there with two. Right. You're, you're, you're talking to people whose job depends on not understanding what Exactly. Talking about. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's just it, exactly right. And so we're just like completely traumatized because we don't know anybody who's not in tech. And, and that's when a miracle occurred. So when Tristan was on 60 Minutes, the woman who did his makeup happened to be someone whose regular gig was doing the makeup for Ariana Huffington. Mm. And she called up Ariana, for whom she'd worked for a decade, and said, Ariana, I've never asked you to do this, but you need to meet this young man. And so she sets up for, for Tristan to meet Ariana. So the two of us go to New York. And Ariana takes Tristan under her wing, gets him onto Bill Maher, and introduces him to a gazillion other people. And, you know, so all of a sudden, we go from not having any relationship at all, and then this purely beautiful woman, Brenda from who did, did the, Tristan's makeup, gets him on there. And she recurs in the story throughout because she did his makeup on Bill Maher. Mm-hmm. She did mine when I was on Bill yeah, Maher. Yeah, mine and it's too. like, <laughs> you know, and it's like you just, it's like you sit there and you go, so, you know, it's the butterfly's wings, yeah. right? And she was the butterfly. And while Tristan's meeting with Ariana for the first time, I get an email from Jonathan Taplin, who wrote the book Move Fast and Break Things. And Jonathan was a friend who had the first insight about the antitrust issues on Google, Facebook, and Amazon, and wrote a book about it in early 2017 that had really helped frame my ideas. And he sends me a card for an aide to Senator Mark Warner. And if you recall, in May of 2017, the only committee of Congress where the Democrats and Republicans were working together was the Senate Intelligence Committee, of which Mark Warner was the vice chair. So to get a card for somebody who is policy aide to him was a huge deal. And so I called him up and I said, have you guys, you know, I know your, your oversight mission is intelligence agencies, but is there anybody in Washington who's going to protect the 2018 elections from interference over social media? You know, it was clearly outside their jurisdiction. Anyway, he brings us to Washington to meet Warner because he goes, you're right. If it's not us, it's not going to happen. So we got to find some way to get to it. You need to meet Warner. And it took a couple months to set up. And in between, we get a contact from Senator Elizabeth Warren, who has a hypothesis about, about the tech group that is really profoundly insightful, where the question she asks is, isn't this basically the same problem as the banks had in 2008, that you have one side, the powerful banks in that case had perfect information, and their clients only had the information the banks were willing to give them? And she had this insight that Facebook and, and Google and, to a lesser extent, Amazon were doing exactly the same thing, that 
they were maintaining markets of perfect information on one side and starving the other side. So they were essentially distorting capitalism, really undermining the notion of capitalism, which requires at least some uncertainty on both sides to have a market. And, you know, using that in a monopolistic way, which, I mean, I was gobsmacked. I've been in the investment business for 35 years. I know a lot about antitrust. I was a first party to the Microsoft antitrust case and to the AT&T breakup. So I really got to watch both of those up close. I'm a huge believer in using antitrust in tech. And here is a senator who has this whole thing figured out in 2017. And, you know, so that's the start of our day. And then we go and meet Warner. And Warner immediately gets the need to do something about to protect the elections. And he goes, what should we do? And Tristan, this is how genius he is. Tristan, without blinking an eye, goes, oh, we need to hold a hearing. You need to make Zuckerberg explain why he isn't responsible for the outcome of the 2016 election. Mm. Well, listen, I want to drill down there. I, w- I want to fast forward at some point to those hearings because those hearings were, I think, famously unproductive, at least the public's perception of them yeah, wa- yeah. is that. But So let's articulate what the problem is here with the business model of Facebook in particular, and I, I, this extends to Google. I, mean, I think Facebook has a, a uniquely culpable story here. And the ethics around this are interesting because you, you, know, you knew these guys. You knew Zuckerberg. You knew Sandberg. You had a reason to believe that they would appreciate the, their ethical obligations once this became evident that there was a problem. And the problem, as I understand it, is this. And I, I should remind people that we're talking about the your, your book Zucked, which is about Facebook in particular, but it's it covers the, the the general footprint of this problem of bad incentives and a business model trafficking in in user data. And generically, the the issue here is that misinformation spreads more effectively than facts. The the more lurid story is more clickable than the the more uh, nuanced one and. You add to that the emotional component that that outrage increases people's time on any social media site. And this leads to an amplification of tribalism and partisanship and conspiracy theory. And all of these things are more profitable than a healthy conversation about facts. They just they they, they simply are more profitable in given the business model. And one could have always said that this dynamic vitiates other media too. I mean, this is true for newspapers, it's true for television, it's just, it's just true that if it bleeds, it leads on some level. But this is integrated into Facebook's business model to an unusual degree. And yet, to hear you tell the story of your, your advising of Zuckerberg and your, I think, I don't think you said it here, but it's in the book that you actually introduced Sandberg to him and facilitated that that marriage that was at a time where the ethical problem of this business model wasn't so obvious to hear you tell i mean were, were they having to confront this back in in 2007 no. or not well it, they were certainly not confronting it in any way that i was aware of it, to be clear in the early days of facebook they had one objective only which was to grow the audience There was really no effort made during the period I was engaged with them to build the business model. Cheryl's arrival was about putting in place the things to create the business model, 
But there was a great deal of uncertainty. In fact, Mark was initially very hesitant to, to hire Cheryl because he didn't believe that Google's model would apply or work at Facebook. And it turned out he was correct about that. So my perception of the model, I love the way you just described that. You know, the thing that I always try to explain to people is that, that when you think about filter bubbles and you think about when it bleeds, it leads, that whole notion has been with us for 150 years. But before Google and Facebook, it was always in a broadcast model. So when I was a kid, everybody my age saw the Kennedy funeral, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and the moon landing. And we all saw it together. And the filter bubble brought people together because we had a shared set of facts. And the complaint at the time was conformity, right? Because we all saw exactly the same thing. With Facebook and Google, they create this world of, in Facebook's case, across all their platforms, three billion Truman shows where each person gets their own world, their own set of facts with constant reinforcement where they lure you onto the site with rewards, right, whether it's notifications or likes, to build a habit. And for many people, that turns into an addiction. I always ask people, people say, oh, I'm not addicted. And I go, okay, great. When do you check your phone first thing in the morning? Is it before you pee or while you're peeing? Because everybody I know is one or the other. And, you know, we're all addicted to some degree. And then once you're coming back regularly, they have to keep you engaged. And this is the stuff that was not happening until roughly 2011, which was this notion of, you know, before 2011, what they had to keep people engaged was Zynga, right? They had, they had social games. That was the big driver of usage time before 2011. And, but what they realized was that appealing to outrage and fear was much more successful than appealing to happiness because one person's joy is another person's jealousy. Whereas if you're afraid or outraged, you share stuff in order to make other people also afraid or outraged because that just makes you feel better. And Tristan had this whole thing figured out. And, you know, we obviously shared that in Washington. And that was, you know, an important stimulus. But when I think about the problem, there's all, that's one piece of it, which is the, the manipulation of people's attention for profit and the natural divisiveness of using fear and outrage and filter bubbles that isolate people. That, you know, if, if you start out vax, anti-vax curious and they can get you into an anti-vax group, within a year, you're going to be in the streets fighting vaccination. Mm. It's just how it works. That constant reinforcement makes your positions more rigid and makes them more extreme. And we cannot help that. It's, it's about the fundamental. It's not a question of character or whatever. It's about the, the most basic evolutionary wiring. I, I just want to cover this ground again, not to be pedantic, but I, I do have the sense that there are many people who are skeptical that this is really even a problem or that there's something fundamentally new about this. So I just want to just cover a little bit of that ground again. You've used this phrase, filter bubble, a bunch of times. If I recall, that actually came from Eli Pariser's TED Talk, where many, yes. of, many of us were first made aware of this problem. He might have mentioned Facebook, but I remember him putting it in terms of Google searches, where if you do a Google search for vaccines, and I do one, 
we are not going to get the same search results. Your search history and all the, the other things you've done online are getting fed into an algorithm that is that now dictating what Google decides to show you in any query. You know, and the problem here is that, and I think I think it was Tristan who no, either Tristan or Jaron Lanier. You might you might correct me here. One of them said, just imagine if when any one of us consulted Wikipedia, we got different facts, you know, however subtly curated to appeal to our proclivities on any topic we researched there. And there could be no guarantee that you and I would be seeing the same facts. That's essentially the situation we're in on social media. And social media is the, and, and Google, and this is obviously the the majority of anyone's consumption of information at this point. Exactly. And so if, if we take that as one part of the problem, so when Eli first talked about filter bubbles, he used both Google and Facebook and showed these examples and how, how essentially these companies were pretending to be neutral when in fact they were not, and they were not honest about it. So you know the Harvard scholar Shoshana Zuboff has a new book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. And there are some things in there where she spent a dozen years studying Google's business and gathering data about it. And in my book, which I wrote at the same time she was writing her, so I was totally unaware of her work, I hypothesize a bunch of things and Shoshana has data. So she's like, in my opinion, a god. But the core thing that Google did, and here's how the flow worked, because without this, what, sh what Facebook did would have been less harmful. But when you talk about the people who are skeptical harm, when you see the Google piece, then the two of them together make it really clear. So Google begins like a traditional marketer. They have one product. It's 2002. The product is search. They're gathering data from their users in order to improve the quality of the product for those users. And they have an insight which is that they only need a couple percent of the data they're gathering to improve the search engine. So they decide to figure out, is there any signal in the other 98%? And the insight is traditionally, I think, credited to Hal Varian, an economist at, at, at Google, that there was, in fact, predictive signal. So pre they could basically do behavioral prediction based on this stream of excess data that they were capturing from search results. And the signal wasn't hugely strong because it was just from search. So they had the insight, we need to find out the identity of people. And then they mm -hmm. did something incredibly bold. They create Gmail, which would have given them identity, which you could tie to the search queries, and therefore you'd know purchase intent and whose purchase intent it was. But the really bold thing they did was they decided they were going to scan every message. And they put ads into the Gmail ostensibly to pay for it. But I think that was actually just duck food. This is a hypothesis of mine, that they knew people would squawk at the ads and force them to be removed. Mm -hmm. But once they were removed, people would stop complaining, and Google would still be scanning all the messages. So we essentially, if you're looking for data for behavioral prediction, it's hard to get a better product than email for telling you what people are thinking. And for whatever reason, people who signed up for Gmail went along with this. So suddenly Google got this massive treasure trove of data about what people are going to do with their name and their search results to tie it to actual purchase intent. 
Then they decide, well, we need to know where they are. So they create Gmail, or sorry, they create Google Maps. And mm-hmm. so now they know where everybody is. And then they realize, well, wait a minute, there's all these open spaces. We can turn them into data and monetize them. So they start driving cars up and down the street to get, create street view. And they do this without permission, but nobody really pushes back very hard. There are a few complaints. Germany got very uppity about it, and there was a big stink over there. But in the U.S., people sort of went along with it. And then they realized, well, wouldn't it be cool if we also took pictures of everybody's house from the top? So they do satellite view. And then they create Google Glass so they can get up close. And that doesn't work. People blow that up. So the guy leaves, creates Niantic, and so they do Pokemon Go, and they do all the APIs. So so they get all this. You know, people think they're playing a game, but they're really gathering data for Google. And when you put all these pieces together, you realize, oh, my gosh, the business model initially was about improving the targeting of the ads. But then they have a genius insight that with filter bubbles and with recommendation engines, they can take those, that market of behavioral prediction and increase the probability of a good outcome by steering people towards the outcomes that the predictions have suggested. And so that's how they use filter bubbles. That's how they use. And so the way to think about it is, is if you're a marketer today, Google and Facebook have all of your customers behind a paywall. But you can do this Faustian deal with these guys, which is you can get perfect information on these people as long as you're willing to do it on their terms. Now, the other side of that trade, if you're a consumer, the data you're getting is coming primarily from Google or Facebook, right? It's being controlled by them. So if you take the emotional component of what Facebook has been doing and that whole thing with, you know, manipulation of attention and the notion of creating habits that become addictions and that inflaming of lizard brain emotions like outrage and fear and the use of disinformation and conspiracy theories to essentially get past people's civility, right? Civility is a mask and you want to strip people of that and get to their underlying reality because that's where all the behavioral prediction value is. And then you overlay onto that what Google was doing Mm. and you realize, oh my God, these people have created digital avatars for each and every one of us. And they've got this choke collar on it and a leash and they control our digital avatars. We do not control them. And they control them simply because they went into a place where there were these, where there was this unclaimed asset called data and they claimed ownership of all of it and we let them get away with it. So on the one hand, you're talking about companies, let's just focus on Google and Facebook here. I'm sure Twitter is involved as well, but I can't figure out how Twitter is, is well, functioning. The other guys, Microsoft and Amazon are the other guys who really do this. Right. right? Okay. Well, let's just, let's just focus on, on the products you've already described here. So, so Google rolls out Gmail and Maps and the user perception of this and search before them, the user perception is this is adding immense value to our lives, right? I mean, just to be able to navigate in a city based on, you know, accurate mapping data and to understand, you know, what streets to avoid because the traffic is so bad, this is what technology should be doing for us. And, you know, Gmail, I was never a fan of of the idea of Gmail until I started getting spammed. I don't know who put me on the on the devil's list, but there was I woke up one day and I was literally getting ninety nine to one spam to to real email, and no spam detector could deal with it. 
and I ran my email through Google servers and, you know, all the spam magically disappeared forever. So I was immensely grateful for this. And there are many other instances of this where if you're a user of Facebook, which I'm really not, I can imagine you like the fact that Facebook is serving you stuff that you find interesting. But the general principle here is that everything that these platforms do that is good for a user or, or seems good for a user is really doubly good for advertisers, otherwise they wouldn't do it. That is the, the bottom line and what's so perverse about the incentives built into the business model. Yeah. So I, the way I handicap it is this way. If all they were doing was capturing the data that you put into the system in the form of the routes for your going to the office and back or the emails that you send or the photos or posts that you put on Facebook, everything I think would be fine. The problem is there is also a third leg of the stool, which is the third-party market in our most personal data. Right. So this is our credit card transactions data, which is sold by Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. It is our location sold by our cellular carrier, but also captured through the APIs that Google has with companies like Uber. It is wellness and health data captured from apps and devices that are outside the protection of HIPAA, the Health Information Protection Act. And it is also our browsing history, which can be freely acquired. And, you know, to me, we've never asked the question, well, wait a minute, why is it legal for companies to do commerce in our most private data? We've actually never agreed to that, right? There's nothing that I can find in a credit card transaction that gives those people the right to sell that data. They've simply asserted and no one has said no. And we live in this, this really deregulated economic environment where the government, you know, in contrast to a normally highly functioning capitalist system where the government would set the rules and then enforce them uniformly on, on mm -hmm. everybody. Well, it must be in their terms of service that nobody ever reads, right? It's got to be in the fine print somewhere. Well, hang on. I don't have a business relationship with Experian or Equifax. Right. My relationship is with Visa. Visa just runs the technology, and Equifax actually handles the transaction processing. I don't have a right. relationship with them. Right. Okay. And so, so most of these guys have something buried in the terms of service, but I think on that one, I'm not, I, I'm, I don't even know where it would show up, right? And you know, I can't imagine why, why it would be in, in Visa's interest to have that happen. And also, they just, they just have a monopoly. You can't opt out of using credit cards, or at least you can't do that easily. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so my point is, if you take those three problems, the emotional component, the, the essential data capture, and you know, the claim of ownership. So it's, it's, it's almost like, a, uh, it's like they're acting like a government exercising a right of eminent domain, right? They're claiming, okay, well, this data has touched our servers, therefore we own it forever and we can do whatever we want with it. And then you've got these third parties who simply will trade your digital life to anybody who wants it. So on, in that scenario, you wind up with this thing where the gatekeepers, in this case, Google, Facebook, Amazon, and maybe to a lesser degree, Microsoft, can offer perfect information to marketers in exchange for access to all of their consumer customers. And the consumers are in this extraordinary position of 
having their access to information limited by those people. And my point here is not that, that Google or Facebook do not provide good value. I think they provide tremendous value. What I believe is true is that the value they're receiving in t- return is, is not only disproportionate, it's that they, they have the ability to influence our choices in ways that we are not aware of, and they're taking our agency away. They, they do a lot of first-party gathering. That would be the Google apps. That would be the Facebook apps. And then they acquire data wherever it's available. So they, they create this, this digital, high-resolution digital avatar for each and every one of us. And they right. sell access to that avatar. That's the perfect information. Right. And so they're, just, they're, they're selling access for cash, right? So they're getting paid. That's why they're so immensely profitable, right? And the, my simple observation the, is if you want to understand the nature of the relationship, is ask yourself how much more value you get from Google Maps or Gmail today than you got, say, two years ago. And then look at Google's average revenue per user over those two years and see how much more value they got from you. Right. And here's where the problem comes, the moral problem gets really dicey, is there is no opt-out. We all say, hey, my data's out there, I don't care, and I'm an honest person. And I sit there and go, that would be true if the only impact of the data was on you. But I don't use Gmail. And if I send an email to somebody in a Gmail account, it is being scanned by Google, and it is going into their behavioral prediction on lots of people, including me. And I have no voice in that. And there are hundreds of examples just like that all over the economy. Mm. And so if you sit there and think that phase one was, again, improving the quality of the ad targeting, which is the thing you liked inside Facebook, and phase two is using recommendation engines and filter bubbles and things like that to steer you to desired outcomes, you're sitting there saying, ooh, that, I don't, maybe don't like that quite so much. Here's phase three. Anyone who is a subscriber to things like the Financial Times has run into the Google CAPTCHA system where they say, hey, we want to figure out if you're a robot. So look at these photographs and touch all the photographs that have a traffic light or all the ones that have a bus. And I think we've all seen that one degree or another. And those things are getting harder and harder. And we think, okay, well, they're just trying to figure out if we're human or not. And of course, that's not what you're doing at all. What you're doing is training the artificial intelligence for Google's self-driving cars. That's why it's getting harder because <laughs> they're getting they're getting to corner cases now. They've figured out you're a human because of the movement of your mouse. Now, I assume that they're keeping a log of all of that. And I assume that Amazon does the same thing and, and Facebook does the same thing, which means that they may already be able to do this, but if not, very soon, when my mouse movement becomes slower than it used to be and gets more wobbly, that may be the first indication that I have a disease like Parkinson's. Now, here's the problem, and this is a deep moral problem. Whichever company captures that, whether it's Facebook, Google, Amazon, is under no obligation to tell me. In fact, they're not even under an obligation to keep it private. They are free, and all the incentives point to them selling it to the highest bidder, which would almost certainly be my insurance company, which would almost certainly raise my rates or cut off my coverage, and I still wouldn't know I'd shown a symptom. And I would simply point out that that same technology could be used in an insurance product that simply said, pay us 10 bucks a year. And if you ever show a symptom of a, of a neurological problem, we're going to let you know. Like, you'll be the only one. We'll be covered by HIPAA and it will protect your secret and get you to a hospital quickly. 
And of course, all of this could be probabilistic, so it might not actually apply to you, but it just has to apply to people like you in the aggregate to be worth trading in this data and, and acting on it. Exactly. And so the issue that we have here is that in a traditional advertising business, we would say that you're not the customer, you're the product. But in the model of these guys, in, in what Zuboff calls the surveillance capitalism, you're not even the product, you're the fuel. Each one of us is a reservoir of data that they're pumping the data out of. And I simply make the observation that, that their influence, if we simply look in democracy, their influence on democracy in every country in which they operate is enormous, that their, their code, their algorithms have so much more influence on our lives than the law does. And yet they're not elected, they're not accountable to anyone. And that, from a democracy point, is a huge problem. Mm. You have all the issues on public health where, you know, why is it legal to even capture data, much less exploit it, relative to minors under 18? Yet Google has whole businesses in Chromebooks and, and YouTube that do precisely that. And if you simply look at the imperatives created by the business model they have, they sit there and their first rule of thumb is, well, we'll let any content go on there, and then the users will be responsible for telling us when there's a problem. So if, you know, a madman kills 50 people in New Zealand, the users have to tell us first. And then when that didn't work politically, they said, okay, well, we'll have moderators who will sit and watch stuff. But I would like to point out that all of these things happen after the fact. And the reason they happen after the fact, and the reason these guys are so insistent on doing it that way, is they want to capture what Zuboff calls the behavioral surplus, the signals that come from the raw parts of our, our psychology, right? Mm. They want to strip the veneer of civility off us and get to that, you know, what are our real underlying emotions? What are our real biases? And so they're going to fight us every step of the way. I mean, obviously, you know, you had Rene DiResta on here, and Renee's completely brilliant. And one of the things that she taught me is this notion that freedom of speech is not the same as freedom of reach, and that the issue here isn't censoring people. The issue we're talking about is avoiding amplification of the most hostile voices in society. And these platforms are platforms designed to provide status as a service. And in that model, you're basically rewarding people for being more outrageous, more angry, more disinformed, if you will, more conspiracy-oriented, and then making, leaving it to the users right, to clean up the mess. And I got a problem with that. And I just don't think that there's any amount of value that you can get from Google Maps or Gmail or from Facebook or Instagram that offsets the damage that they're doing right now to society as a whole. That individually, we may love these products, and I don't dispute that, but they're causing huge harm. And my basic point here is I believe we can get rid of the harm without having to eliminate what we like about the products. They're going to be a lot less profitable, a lot less profitable. But tough noogies. I mean, you know, 
companies, corporations are not allowed to destroy civilization just because it's more profitable than building civilization. I want to zoom out for a second. I want to talk about these specific problems more, and I do want to get to the government's response and to possible solutions. But I just want to zoom out for a second and and talk about this basic quandary, which I'm I'm fairly sympathetic with. I mean, the, the most charitable view of what these platforms are doing is simply thinking of themselves as platforms. They insist, you know, we're platforms, we're not media companies. And, you know, on its face, that seems like a legitimate distinction, which could absolve them of responsibility for the content that appears on their platform. And it's even something that I recommended to Jack Dorsey at some point when I, in my conversation with him, when we're talking about what seems to be this insuperable problem of him and his team, aided by algorithms, trying to figure out who to ban on Twitter, right? And they're, and they're getting it wrong, just they're committing howler after howler on a seemingly hourly basis, where they're canceling the accounts of people who just state biological facts, but then get, you know, inundated with complaints from people in the trans community, right, who were offended by a tweet which said something like, you know, men and women are different, right? Or, you know, I hear from ex-Muslims and Muslim reformers who get their accounts revoked because religious maniacs in the Muslim community are issuing complaints against them because they're saying the most basic civilized things about, you know, secular values and ethics based on humanism, right? So it's Twitter gets this wrong so egregiously that my recommendation to him was, why not just take refuge in the First Amendment here? Why not just recognize that this has to be a, a platform basically for sane adults, and it's a wilderness, and people will be saying what's ever on their mind, and let the U.S. Constitution be your backstop. You know, if Pakistan objects because they have blasphemy laws, tell Pakistan to go fuck itself. You believe that the, the ethics reside in a 21st century view of free speech and plant your flag there and then draw the line at harms that are happening in the physical world based on things like doxing and trading and you know stolen information and you know real you know obvious you know calls to violence that that are problematic and then your job gets much simpler and it still may be a job given the the fact that you have hundreds of millions of users it may be, in the absence of, of perfect AI, a problem you're never going to get right. But then when you flip that around and you see what the kinds of problems we're now discussing with what, what's happened, especially on Facebook, the responsibility does seem to be to be far more restrictive than that and, and more curatorial than that because, again, we have... I mean, just take the local case of, of vaccines, right? You know, we have, we have misinformation that will reliably lead to the death of children being amplified by a now well-understood dynamic on one's own social platform, if you are Mark Zuckerberg or Sheryl Sandberg. And it seems like the responsibility to clamp down on that and be far more restrictive than the U.S. Constitution would seem to indicate that it becomes pressing. So I, I really, I'm sympathetic with both sides of this, this argument. I wonder if you want to just take that on as a, in the generic case. 
I do. And I think there are at least three forms that you have to look at because they, they, there are elements in common, but there are really, really material differences between Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And I think it's important to recognize that there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution for those three that is going to satisfy the issues of society. Mm. I think as, as framed by you, the Twitter situation fits closest to the First Amendment protection model because the nature of Twitter is that the, the news feed there is, relatively speaking, you're, you're able to see it in an undiluted, unedited way. And it is, as you say, almost by design, a free speech platform. Where I think the issue fails, the free speech issue fails completely at Facebook. And I think it, it not only doesn't apply that it is a completely disingenuous argument there, is that at any moment in time, there are at least a million different things Facebook could show you in your newsfeed. And they pick the 20 that suit their needs best. So they exercise an editorial function mm -hmm. before you even arrive. And they are editing constantly. Again, their rules and algorithms, their code, have all of these incredibly arbitrary rules about what you can and cannot do that are in themselves arbitrarily enforced. You know, you can have a men's breast, a men's nipple, but not a woman's nipple, you know, that kind of stuff. And so Facebook has all of these rules that it maintains, and it has this very intense editorial process that manicures the news feed. And you have no control. They also maintain control of all the menus, and they choose the things they notify you of. And so I think that Facebook's ability to hide behind the First Amendment relative to issues like disinformation, conspiracy theories, hate speech, and the like, is it's not supported by the reality of the business. And I think, again, I come back to Rene DiResta's point about amplification. The entire business model, because it is status as a, as a service and because the easiest way, the least, the thing that requires the smallest expenditure of effort is to be outrageous. They've in fact structured the entire product to produce antisocial outcomes. And to my mind, you know, when Mark comes out a couple weeks ago and says, oh, well, I'm going to go to end-to-end -end encryption because I think messaging is the right model, you know, I just sit there and I shake my head because it's so obviously a dodge that he's looking to use end-to-end -end encryption to absolve himself of responsibility for the content that's put on the site. And effectively, you know, if doing that prevented am amplification of the worst things going on in society, then maybe that would work. But I don't think that's how they're going to implement this because, again, the value of the system is based on getting to people's most raw emotional state, because that's the thing that has the greatest predictive value of where you're going to spend money and what you're going to be interested in. Mm. And so, Sam, relative to Facebook, I, I not only don't buy the First Amendment thing, I think it's, it's a dishonest framing of, of what actually happens. Right. When I look at YouTube, I think YouTube is, you know, a black hole leading to a cesspool and that it is by its nature 
right now harmful to two in two different ways. One is that it it amplifies information that these are harmful. So this would be anti-vax, flat earth, you know, things that are just plain not true and can cause either an inability to to reason. You know, I had a person who came to me on the book tour in Los Angeles and said her daughter came home and said Pearl Harbor couldn't happen because the Japanese didn't have any planes that could fly from Japan to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And, and she learned this on YouTube. And YouTube specializes. And there was a story a few months ago about how the percentage of people who believe in flat earth had risen from, I don't know, practically nothing to something very significant because of two, I think it was two different channels on, on YouTube. I mean, that's, that's just really unhealthy. And then you get the whole issue of, of New Zealand where, you know, the way these things are set up, there's no ability to control the spread of inappropriate content once it's in there. And in my mind, again, it's the amplification that is the issue here. It's the fact that their business model is driven by exploiting the worst tendencies. And you have to ask the question, you know, when you look at, in the case of Facebook, the country of Myanmar, country of 50 million people in Asia, where the United Nations cited Facebook for enabling a, quote, classic ethnic cleansing, unquote, that killed 9,000 people in six months with 42,000 missing and presumed dead. At some point, you have to ask the question, where do you draw the lines? What are the things that, you know, are they guilty of manslaughter in that situation? Are they guilty of, you know, reckless endangerment? Are they guilty? What, are they guilty of something, right? I don't know the answer to that question. I'm not a lawyer. But when the United Nations has cited you uniquely as being an enabler of an ethnic cleansing and you don't do anything about it after the fact and nobody inside your company protests it, you have to ask the question of what's going on here, right? So, so, the, so but just again, to get the, the problem at, at its most abstract, is the concern here that the nature of this technology is to give a microphone or a broadcasting platform to everyone. And so some percentage of those people will be delusional, they'll be conscious frauds, they'll be psychopaths who are spreading information that because it is stickier, because it's extreme, and designed to provoke outrage or paranoia or some other state that is more clickable, it will tend to spread in this network more virally than the, okay. the, the person who's just talking about climate change in sober tones. Is there more to it than that? I mean, I guess there, yes. that's, that's yes. a distinct piece from selling people's private data and using and creating an advertising business that right. seems to be a content business, but it's really based on, on manipulating people's attention. So, Sam, let's look at their components. They're based on the platforms and components based on, on the design of the Internet. So the Internet, the Internet is responsible for two parts of the problem. And one of them is that it obviously connects everybody and makes it possible for disaffected people with, you know, shall we say, deeply antisocial tendencies to find each other in a way they couldn't before it. And you can say you're either okay with that or not okay with that, but that's simply something the Internet has enabled that wasn't possible before. The other thing it has, which I think makes the first issue more problematic, is that the internet does not have any way of requiring real identity. And so the disaffected can hide behind anonymity 
and therefore have more power. And so there's an inherent issue on the internet in that that bullies gain an advantage from the anonymity and there is no reciprocal defense available to everybody else. Mm. Then you go to the platforms. And I would argue that the issue isn't that this stuff would naturally spread on its own the way it does. I think there are massive assists provided by the platforms that take things like the New Zealand video and that their business model makes that stuff spread in ways it would not organically if you had a different al- set of al- algorithmic choices that were in so there. So just to emphasize that, so, so in, the, in the New Zealand case, that was such a horrible piece of media and of such consequence that it was taken down because you know, everybody immediately noticed the problem. But in, in general, what's happening is that there are analogously awful pieces of media in the sense that they're tearing at our social fabric, they're deluding people, they're siloing people in conspiracy thinking, they're undermining our politics. And all of this is just the water in which we now swim on platforms like Facebook. And this this is given privileged access to our attention because the business model favors it. Well, but Sam, it goes beyond that. I mean, keep in mind, for network television, there's a five or 10 second delay to make sure that nobody says an inappropriate word Mm. or something happens that they should stop. And there are no analogous things on the internet. So Facebook has Facebook Live and everything just by default goes directly out to the world. And, you know, you could imagine a different framing of the rules that says, no, no, it's video, all the same rules that apply to networks apply to you, which is a five or 10 second delay and somebody has to make sure it's not, not inappropriate. And you say, oh, but that's too expensive to do. And they go, well, guess what, pal? Maybe that's an actual barrier. The reality is that these guys have asserted their ability to do all this stuff without constraint. And so if you ask me what my goal is, my goal is to make sure we have discussions, right? Why is it that no rules apply to these guys. Why are they allowed to do things that a network television broadcaster would not be allowed to do? And, you know, they're basically, it's, it's because of the time they came along and, and their extreme boldness, right? They, they simply don't recognize authority as, you know, as something that should be avoided. It's, in fact, in their minds, something to be confronted. And, you know, I simply observe that at small scales, that wouldn't be a problem. But at the kind of global scale you're at now, you have to, I think, have a conversation and ask, were the choices that we made or the choices we allowed to happen over the last 10 years correct given what we now know? Mm. And, and my point to you, Sam, is, is really simple. I don't think I'm the right person to judge that. What I believe is that I am a person who, has, who saw it early enough and got together with these incredibly brilliant people who helped me understand it in a way that I can articulate well enough that we can have a conversation, but not well enough necessarily to, to change your mind about what we ought to do. And I'm, I'm okay with that. I just, I think conversations like this are profoundly important because there are multiple points of view. It's just that only one of them has been in the marketplace, and that's been the platform's view. Right. And, and the, there hasn't been a framework. You were talking earlier about the hearings and the fact that Congress appeared to be, you know, completely overmatched. And I would like to take 30 seconds to well, come I, to I, Actually, I, w- I want to get there, but I, I want to talk about a few of the things that Facebook has done b- before we get there. Because, again, some of these 
seem to cut both ways, and I, I can take a Facebook sympathetic view of their behavior, but in other cases, I really can't, and, the, and what they did seems to suggest a fairly sinister or at least a ethically aloof attitude toward all of this. So, so the first thing is, this has come up a few times in our conversation so far, the emphasis on real identity. Right, so, so one of the failings of Twitter has always been that it allows for anonymous accounts, and as you just said, that this allows you know for this sort of property of of road rage and bullying, even coming from you know normal people. One presumes in many cases, it just changes human psychology to know that your your identity is hidden, and. It's always seemed to me, and again, I'm not a fan of Facebook. I never use it, really, apart from just pushing out my own content in a, in a kind of publishing way. But it's always seemed, it seemed an ethical strength of Facebook that they require real identity. But of course, the reality of that is that it is so good for them from an advertising point of view to know who you are that that has to be the real reason why they do it. So my problem with Facebook is that they started with a genius notion in my mind, which was authenticated identity through your email account. And it wasn't perfect, but it was miles better than anything we've ever seen. And the ability to control who saw your information, that form of privacy, those controls were built into the early thing. But as the company grew, they adopted the PayPal mafia view of, of blitz scaling that says eliminate all forms of friction. And so that basically meant they were going to shift the burden of validation to the users. And that works asymmetrically. So when you say that we require true identity, but we're not actually going to look mm. unless there's a ton of complaints. And if you think about it, in that scenario, you have three quarters of a billion inauthentic accounts that they claim to reject every quarter. And there's a lot of people trying to create inauthentic accounts and presumably many that slip through. And they can sit there quietly until the moment they want to do whatever it is they want to do. And then they do what they do and then get a, you know, there's enough complaining, they get rid of that account and they form a different one. And so there's, it's really, really, really bad model. This notion that we're going to let anything happen and then fix it afterwards results at this scale in harm you can't undo. You know, I talked about at the beginning, my, one of the first insights I had was about this corporation scraping Facebook for data on people who are interested in Black Lives Matter and selling to police departments. I mean, Facebook did exactly the right thing. They expelled the company, but the damage had been done. The police departments had data on lots of people and presumably were harassing many of them. And in my mind, this notion that, that the users bear the responsibility for maintaining the quality of the environment on these platforms mm. is ludicrous. I mean, it might have made sense at small scale. It makes no sense at large scale. But at large scale, that's precisely where they have the alibi. How could we possibly maintain this environment when whatever it is, tens of millions of people join our platform every day. Well, what it suggests is there's a fundamental flaw in the, in the business. 
right? I mean, this would be analogous to saying, oh, well, you know, it's really, really too expensive to safeguard, you know, nuclear materials. So we're just not going to do it. I mean, we actually, let me give you a better example. Sam, we used to have a thing in the chemical industry where, you know, chemical companies self-regulated. And so they dumped the waste products wherever it was convenient. So they would pour mercury into fresh water and they would dump, you know, mine tailings next to the mine. And all that stuff would just sit there in the environment. And then one day the country woke up and realized this is a disaster. We have toxic waste all over the place. It's polluted our rivers. It's corrupted our, our fresh water supplies. It's, it's, you know, harming the land. You've got all this irreparable damage. And we decided, you know what? We're going to assign responsibility to the people who created the mess. And, you know, it completely changed the business model of the chemical industry. It went from being an incredibly profitable industry to a not very profitable industry. And we're going through this with coal right now because coal has never had to pay the downstream costs, right. the environmental damage or the health effects of what it creates. And when you assign that, you discover, well, actually, this isn't that good a business. And you know what? I don't believe that Facebook in particular or even Google are that good a business if they actually have to pay the cost of the, the toxic digital spills that they create. And we will eventually come to terms with this and what's interesting is we will still get all those services we like. They're just going to be a lot safer, and these companies are going to be a lot less profitable, and the world will be a better place. Right. And all I want to do is that's the conversation we're trying to have here. Interesting. So I, I want to run through a few things that Facebook has done that, has, that have given some indication of, of just how captured they are by the bad incentives and just how clear their conscience has been with respect to the, the ethical problems here. What was Beacon? <laughs> oh, my God. So 2007, I believe, might have been 2006, Facebook introduced this product called Beacon. And the idea was they were trying to figure out how to monetize the site. So they go to all these retail people and say, when somebody who is a member of Facebook makes a purchase, you feed that back to an API and we're going to post it on their newsfeed. And Facebook did this without what I would characterize as, you know, prior informed consent of the users affected. And there was a famous anecdote that I believe either occurred the first or second day that Beagle was out that a man bought a diamond engagement ring on overstock.com. Uh -huh. And the thing shows up in his newsfeed, his fiance to be and all of his friends find out in real time with a picture of the diamond before he's even told her with the source of it. So it's overstock and the price, which was like 90% off. I mean, it was horrific. The backlash was overwhelming and intense. And it was, you know, Mark had been pushing in little bits. And I, I mean, I, I, I will never forget Beacon because it was one of those things where it was so obviously a horrible idea. Yeah, it's hard to see how they didn't see that coming. How you're going to make everyone's purchases transparent to everyone in their lives or whoever happens to be following them? Yeah, right, exactly. Okay, so, so you see this the same way I do. So what happened was that, you know, three or four months later, they pull the product back and kill it. And they take the same technology, and that became... Facebook Connect, the way that you log into sites going around the internet. Right. With the same basic notion, they sort of reversed the field and, and off you went. 
And that became probably the single most important thing they did to, for tracking their users as they went around the web. So this is a great example of a, a situation where the user is just seeing their use of the internet facilitated by Facebook in this case. I mean, Amazon also does it. And for most of us, there's no thought as to what's in it for Facebook, right? This is just a feature that is, has made my, my endlessly logging on to new websites easier to do. And yet for Facebook, this is their way of tracking what you do outside of Facebook. Yes. And, you know, there is something, you know, you know this better than I do, but there's some evolutionary need for convenience that, yeah. we, that we are drawn to even when we know there's something bad going to happen. But if we don't know something's bad, bad is going to happen, you know, then we don't perceive the risk. And I would argue, and I'm, I look at this as somebody whose career dates back to the very beginning of the 80s, that for, from 1956, when the tech industry as we know it began, through about, I don't know, 2006, 7, 8, there was never a reason to mistrust the tech industry that it basically was in the business of improving our lives. Steve Jobs famously talked about bicycles for the mind. You know, this idea that bicycle, when a human's on a bicycle, it's the most efficient locomotion of any species, wildly more efficient than would be without one. And that Steve perceived that personal computers could do for the mind what bicycles do for our locomotion. And we were all committed to that idea. And it was idealistic, it was utopian, but the products, for the most part, delivered some small version of that. And Facebook and Google have cashed in 50 years of goodwill. Yeah. They've basically pretended like they were continuing in that tradition when in fact they were using that the same way they used the First Amendment they, as a dodge to deflect attention like a magician. You know, Tristan's always talking about in magic, this, they're the, these, they have this inability to resist you know, following the magician's hand. It's just, it's wired into you. Convenience is a, is a massive flourish of the hand that distracts us, and we don't even know that the, you know, the rabbit's being smuggled into the hat here. Well, and these guys are creating the problem that forces us to choose convenience, right? Because yeah. they're sending us notifications 24 by 7, and, you know, they're part of this, this notion of hurry up, hurry up, and you need more status, you need more status, you need more status. And so they're making our lives busier, and then providing us with little incremental piece of convenience. I mean, the huge crisis now on that is smart devices, you know, powered by Alexa or Google Home. And, you know, that whole thing of, oh, well, now I can get to my playlist or find out the weather by a voice command. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Think about the fact that they've just put a spy in your it's, bedroom. Right. Well, let's leave Amazon out of this just for just to streamline the conversation. But, uh, you know, we can we can flag our, our global concern with Amazon as well. But the example you bring up in your book, which I was unaware of, which struck me as truly nefarious, was when Facebook bought a VPN company yeah. and used that to snoop on what people were doing. And anyone who's using a VPN is using it under the assumption that snooping is impossible. Exactly. So they bought this company from Israel called Onavo. And Onavo for them had one purpose only. They offered it to users. And in the buried in the fine print is we're going to look at every packet that runs through your, your Onavo connection. And this is reputedly how they figured out one that Snapchat 
was going to be a really big deal and then figured out which features of Snapchat people really wanted to use. So they used it to spy on uh, not just on what users are doing in general, but around very specific things that might be competitive against Facebook. And this created very little ripple in the marketplace until Apple one day says, you know what? We figured out you're spying on everybody. We're throwing this thing out of the App Store. And so that basically blew Anavo up. And so Facebook repackages it as a, quote, research, unquote, application. Mm. And they then bypass the App Store. And Google has an analogous product. They do the same thing. They literally put it in there as though they're just putting out a testing release that their own people are going to work on. So they have this little side door to the App Store that is there to help developers just work on a product in a live setting. And instead, they're using it to, to, to push the product into the market. And that was what caused Apple to suspend both Google and Facebook for a day because they said, hang on, you cannot do this to our customers. You know, that, that what you people are doing is wrong. And I mean, I really admire Apple. They're not perfect. What they're doing in China really bugs me. But what they're doing around privacy and what they're trying to do to, to create massive separation is working. Mm-hmm. And the difference is now so huge that, you know, I sit down with my friends who have Androids and I go, what exactly are you thinking, right? I mean, what is really motivating this purchase? Because it, Android is essentially a, a vacuum cleaner for your digital identity. Mm-hmm. And the iPhone, which is not perfect because there are addiction issues and all of that related to it, at least when it comes to privacy, they're making a genuine effort. And that's, that's really just, you know, you might ascribe it to the ethical integrity of the people involved, but it's more likely simply an artifact of this historical contingency, which is they have a different business model. They, their, their business model is not trading in data. They're, no. they're selling software, they're selling devices, and they're selling you know, streaming services and, and things that are just different. But Sam, it could be data. I mean, Microsoft right. has gone from selling things to selling data. Yeah, they could, they could get into the, into the same game if they wanted to. They know? could easily have done it. I mean, they have so much data and they've consciously chosen not to, whereas Microsoft, which started with less data, has constantly chosen to follow the Google Facebook path. And so I look at this as, I mean, look, Apple's not perfect, but on this one issue, there is more going on. Yes, the business model got them started in the right direction, but it would have been dead easy for them to overlay a data business on top of this. Right. And, you know, they spend a billion dollars a year or something on, on Apple Maps for one reason only, so that their customers do not have to use Google Maps. Right. They make no attempt to monetize it. They literally snip off the endpoints, throw them away when you're done with your route. They take the rest of it in bust it into a lot of different pieces, and then scramble those so they can't reconstruct the route. I mean, they're really trying super hard to protect your privacy. And I look at that and I go, you know, in this environment, that is so unusual. It really stands out. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, so before we get to um, the hearings, just one more clinical study on Facebook's account. Cambridge Analytica, what happened there? (laughs) Oh, my God. So here's the deal. In 2011, Facebook signed a consent decree with the Justice Department that was really the result of what had happened with social games, Zynga, you know, with Farmville and all the other products that followed it, and the other social gaming companies where Facebook 
in its effort to go from just having high user count to having high user count with lots more activity per day, to get from a couple minutes a day up to an hour a day, they discovered, because Zynga figured this out accidentally, that if you could share friends lists and then have those people do a a LinkedIn-style spamming of everybody, you would wind up getting a lot more activity because games would have lots of people playing with each other on the platform and the time on site would go way up. And so in 2011, the uh, FTC says, no mas, you can't do that anymore. And you have to have prior informed consent. Facebook signs a, the consent decree, agrees to end the practice. And as far as I can tell, made literally no effort to enforce it. They've made a lot of effort to protect themselves legally from being attacked over it, but they didn't actually hire engineers or assign engineers to prevent the sharing, the inappropriate sharing of data. So the sharing of data continues. And at the time of the IPO, there were 9 million apps on the Facebook platform, which is the, the part of the product where this would happen. If 1% of those people were taking advantage of the tool, then 90,000 apps would have had it, and the game apps were just simply enormous. So if you sat there and looked at a product like, like uh, Cityville, which was a Zynga product, had, I think, 100 million users at peak, and there were a bunch of others that also would have, like Candy Crush, that would have 100 million users, which meant that every single person in the countries in which those products were used would be on the friends list because everybody would have an average of 200 friends. And, I mean, they're just staggering, staggering irresponsibility here. So Cambridge Analytica comes along, and in that particular case, they wanted to use the friends list in order to create a product to change the outcome of elections, to, to, to use what they thought was this notion of psychographics, which was essentially profiling people into six or seven different buckets that would be indicative of, your, of their persuadability in an election context. And this was an idea that came from Stephen Bannon, who went to work for Trump eventually. It was financed by Robert Mercer, who has financed Breitbart and many other right-wing causes. And they had a very explicit goal, which was to use this to further a political agenda. And they initially attempted to get the stuff from Cambridge University, which had a lot of data because it was a legitimate Facebook researcher. They said no. So they hired a Cambridge researcher, one guy who Facebook had also worked with, who went in and created a personality test that would, they would use to gather, to gather tens of millions of American Facebook user IDs. And they got upwards of 50 million in total, and they were able to marry 30 million, roughly, of those Facebook user IDs to voter files. And in a country where you had, I think, 210 million registered voters and 137 million voted in the election, to have 30 million exact matches with lots and lots of data put them in a position to essentially apply the, the Truman Show notion to democracy, which is that instead of having to persuade voters that your three positions that your three positions are the most important, that what you do is you find the emotional weak spot for each voter and then have a campaign designed to either 
persuade them to do something different or far more likely to simply suppress their vote. Yeah. And, yeah. and all of this happened. The Guardian exposed what Cambridge was doing in December of 2015 and Facebook in theory forced them to expunge the data and go away. But by the summer of 2016, Cambridge Analytica was embedded in the Trump digital campaign offices in an office adjacent to three Facebook employees and a set of employees from Google and a set of employees from Microsoft, all of whom were helping the Trump campaign run its digital operations. What, what do you do, just given the numbers you just floated, what do you do with people's professed skepticism that this could have swung the election? I mean, we're talking about an election that I think was swung by 77,000 votes. And here you're talking about having 30 million Facebook profiles. Well, and remember, that's, that's a custom audience from which you can then build a lookalike audience. And when your custom audience is that large, the lookalike audience allow you to have almost perfect targeting of every voter in America. There were 4 million people who voted for Obama in 2012 who did not vote in 2016. And the campaign was focused on voter suppression. This right. wasn't about persuading people who were, who were Obama voters or Clinton voters to vote for Trump. Right. This was about going, and, they, and Brad Parscale, who was the head of the digital operations for Trump, was very open about this. He said, we had three targets, suburban white women, people of color, and idealistic young people. And those three were all suppressed very, very effectively. And one, it's not crazy to imagine that between the DNC hack, which included the entire Clinton playbook, yeah. so the, you know, the same place that they got Podesta's emails, they would have also gotten Clinton's exact playbook state by state. Plus, there was a separate hack by the Russians of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee where they would have gotten at the congressional level the, the Democratic playbook and all the internal intelligence on persuadable voters. And, you know, when you hear about Manafort doing his quid pro quo with his guy uh, Kalimnik and giving him all the, the, the polling data, I mean, and they're saying, well, what did he get back for it? Well, it would be really easy to imagine he might have gotten back a thing that said, well, focus here, here, and here, because the Russians definitely had that data. Right. And so the question is, what happened with it? And we don't know, right? And my, my simple observation is I look at Cambridge Analytica and I look at the people who were there as there were a thousand people trying to do what they did, but they were the ones who got picked by, by Mercer and Bannon. They were the ones who were inside the Trump campaign. And in an election decided by 77,800 votes in three states and with a campaign that appeared to be, shall we say, brilliantly targeted and where 4 million people who voted four years prior didn't vote at all, it's not crazy to imagine it had a potentially decisive impact. Now, to be clear, you wouldn't have been that close enough for it to affect anything had it not been for the WikiLeaks stuff, you know, the hacks of the DNC DCCC, Comey, right, and her emails, and the decision by U.S. publications not to put out the story of the FBI investigation of Trump campaign at the very end, yeah. right? There, were, there, were, there was like eight things that had to happen, and every one of them happened. It doesn't matter which one matters, but I don't think you can take any of them out of the equation and get the outcome you got. And so to my mind, it doesn't matter. I'm not in the business of relitigating 2016. To me, the thing that matters about all this, and this is the thing everybody should pay attention to, 
is we know the Chinese, we know the Koreans, the Saudis, the Iranians, and I believe maybe the Israelis are all playing around this game. And presumably they're picking different sides. Right. right? And, and we had a case in Tulare County, California, in Southern California, where a, a guy running for school board hired an Israeli digital ops firm to try to do this in a school board election. Right. And so I'm sort of sitting here and going, excuse me, ladies it's and gentlemen. a fairly high caliber effort for the school board. And he right. lost. <laughs> and I'm just, my problem with this whole thing is I believe democracy is about one person, one vote, and all the votes ought to be counted. I'm, I'm kind of traditional that way. And we're at a point now where there is, the levels of interference are so great that we have to ask ourselves, you know, do we want to be a representative democracy or not, right? Or do we want to even be a republic? Do we want to be any of these things? And I look at this and I go, it doesn't matter what you thought of, of 2016. That one's over and done. Question is, what's yeah. going to happen this next time? Because right now we have policies in this country that are, shall we say, have forced people to choose sides. We have fewer friends than we had last time around. And you can imagine people being pissed off. You can imagine the Chinese having a view. You can imagine the North Koreans having a view. You can imagine the Russians having a view, the Saudis having a view, right? And I don't think they all have the same view. Okay, so take me back to those hearings and the, the public-facing efforts that our republic, democratic or otherwise, was making in the aftermath of 2016 to understand and, and contain the problem. So I would like to remind everybody who's listening that as a country, we made a choice to have citizen legislators. We made that choice in 1789, and it served us pretty well. I would also point out that between 1956 and the end of October of 2017, the citizen legislators had no reason to be concerned about the tech industry, that there was no signal that they should be regulating the industry. Essentially, all Americans loved the tech products. We were in an environment of, of massive deregulation and you know there were serious problems in other places nothing to see here this is another way of saying that we we have elected people who don't know what wi-fi is and can't log into their own email i mean these are not sophisticates so so that that may or may, that may be true but that's not the point i'm making the point i'm making was let's take the ones who did know how to do all those things and who actually know what metadata is okay okay they had no reason to suspect there was something to be done here that essentially this was an industry that was held in a almost unique position in our economy and that they had grown to massive scale without any complaints. The flag goes up at the hearings October 31st, 2017 and November 1st. That's Facebook reveals the night before 126 million targeted Facebook users were reached by Russian interference and another 20 million on Instagram. The alarm bell goes off. Those first hearings were, I think it's reasonable to suggest, not particularly brilliant. But they achieved one really important goal, which is that good companies are not dragged in front of Congress for allowing our adversaries to interfere in our elections. So in my mind, 
it achieves something really important relative to raising awareness of this as an issue. Mm-hmm. And I say this as somebody who, for you know, the prior nine months, been trying to get somebody to pay attention, was really struggling to do so, and all of a sudden that happens. Then we get to the second set of hearings in the spring of 2018. These are the ones first with Zuck and then with Sheryl Sandberg. Okay, so the first hearings did not have Zuckerberg lawyers showed up, right? Not Gen- the general counsels right. okay. and and a senator, a Republican senator from Louisiana named John Kennedy had the highlight of the whole thing when he gets on the case of can Facebook look at individual accounts? And the Facebook's general counsel tried to dodge around the thing, forced finally to do yes or no. He said no, which in fact was not true. Right. And, but anyway, so we go to the spring and finally Zuckerberg and Sandberg show up. And the, the absolutely uniform public view was that it was a bunch of old men who had no idea what was going on and that Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah, you know, saying, well, you give the product away for free, how do you make money, right? That was a particularly mm-hmm. difficult moment. So I was at MSNBC that day because I was supposed to comment for the whole eight hours of the hearing. At the roughly the one hour and 50 minute mark, something like that, the FBI raided Paul Manafort's home. A competing news story. Not competing, an, a tsunami news story. Yeah. It literally, they shut us down, sent us all home. They shut down everywhere. Everything but C-SPAN went down. The point was, at that point, you were like five senators in, average age like 74 years old. The senators had a pretty decent day once you got deep into the count. The, in the House, it was extraordinary. If you read the transcript of the House hearing, it was really it was a coordinated questions that were all over the issue of pinning Zuck down and going, hang on, Zuck, you're just talking about data. We're asking about metadata. We're saying, yeah, the data, we, we, we agree with you. So you give people ability to control their photographs. BFD, the real issue we got to deal with here is all this other data you have about them that you're not giving them any control over, any access to it, and that's where all your money comes from. And it's really interesting to hear Kathy Castor from Florida, Ben Lujan from New Mexico, Joe Kennedy. There are a long string of people who are just slicing them up with a sushi knife. So this, this was the very next day that was not seen by, or commented by anybody. By much? Right, okay. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah. Washington Post did a debrief like a week later and went, wait a minute, they went back and read the transcript. And went, Actually, we got it wrong the first time, but nobody was paying attention. So here's my point. We just elected 40 members of the House of Representatives under, I, th- I think, 40 under the age of 40. You know, they're all digital natives. Congress does a great job of regulating banking, healthcare, and defense, which are all wildly more complicated. But they've had a long time to get up to speed. They've had less than 18 months to get up to speed here. And the observation I would make is they actually, on average, use this stuff a lot more than they use healthcare, banking, or defense. So I'm very hopeful. And we don't need them to be perfect. We just need them to ask some questions. And the questions I want them to ask are the following. Why is it legal for a service provider who gives you, say, email or online apps to scan the content of your material, your private material, for their economic gain? Why is it legal for credit card processors to sell your financial transaction data? Why is it legal for cellular carriers to sell your location or for Uber to let Google have access to all your location data? Why is it legal for a wellness application to give Facebook or others access to your private health and wellness data? 
why is it legal for anyone to sell your browsing history? These are questions that have never been asked in a public forum. And what's really interesting is that when I go around, it doesn't matter whether I'm on Fox, whether I'm at MSNBC, whether I'm Fox Business or CNBC. Everybody thinks about those questions for a second and goes, well, wait a minute, why is that true? Because if you think about looking at your email and then profiting from it, that could easily be theft, right? And if you're in, if you're in like Google Docs or Microsoft Office 365 and they're scanning your stuff, I mean, how is that legitimate? Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you, why is it even legal to collect data on miners? which is what Google's Chromebook business is all about. And, you know, they say, oh, it's anonymized. I'm going, give me a break. You only need three other data points to de-anonymize it for a lot of kinds of content. It's like all of this stuff is dishonest and disingenuous. And I'm just saying, look, we're not going to lose the services we love. You could take away 99% of the profits of these companies. They're still going to deliver the services. I mean, you think they're going to Ayn Randy and walk away from us on this thing? I don't see that, okay? Um, they're just not going to do that. And my point is, I don't even think we're talking about that. I just think we're in the situation where we're running out of time. These are authoritarian companies, right? They have min the, the founders have minority stakes in the companies, but absolute control. They are, by definition, required to align with the powerful because they have such deep market share, they can never be on the wrong side of the powerful. So they're always lined up against the weak. And their business practices say that we are fuel. We're not even the product. And I'm just sitting there going, all of this because of artificial intelligence, you know, we're, and because of, of 5G and smart devices, you know, all of this is getting deeper, scarier, and harder to fix. So I'd like to have the conversation right now while there's still time. And the one thing I can tell you is it doesn't matter whether I'm talking to the, the Federal Trade Commission, including Trump appointees, whether I'm talking to the antitrust division of the Justice Department, again, Trump appointees, whether I'm talking to Democrats in Congress, everybody gets this. This is an issue of right versus wrong, not right versus left. Mm. And, and the thing I'm saying to you, Sam, I mean, you are a philosopher and, you know, I am an amateur. So I, I look at these things, but I have very deep values on this stuff. And I don't want to pretend like I got the answer. What I want everybody to understand is I was the wrong messenger for Mark and Cheryl. I may be the wrong messenger for a lot of people today. But study the issues. Imagine the world is a different place. We do not need to have so much anger. We don't need fear to be the biggest profit driver of our economy. We can have a thing, I mean, which is more wholesome. And the key thing to recognize is that these companies, which I played a role in, have been enormous drivers of the issues we see in society today. And so people say, Roger, why are you doing this? I'm going, because every one of us faces a moment of truth at some point in our lives where an issue comes along and you have to decide, right? I was retired. I could have sat back and watched it. But I realized, you know, I profited from this. I was part of it. I really need, this is my issue. If I don't stand up on this, what am I going to stand up on? What do I stand for? And so I look around, I say to people, I'm not asking other people to do what I'm doing, but I'm saying, let's get engaged. Don't let a politician come to your town and walk away without answering the question of why do you allow? Why is it legal? 
for apps vendors to read your, the content of your private stuff? Why is it legal for them to trade your most personal data mm. for profit? Well, so now I'm sensitive to your, your time constraints, Roger, but a couple of ethical questions in response to that. So the, the, the questions you just posed, you know, why is it legal to trade in somebody's personal data? Why can you sell browsing history? Why can you scan somebody's email or even their Word documents and use that data? These really are, on some level, rhetorical questions because I think you feel and I feel and virtually anyone hearing them posed that way feels that there is no satisfactory answer that leads to continuing the status quo, right? It's just, it, it, it seems patently absurd that this is the business model. So assuming that that's the punchline, what does the world look like the day after? What do you think we should do or force these yeah. companies to do? So Sam, I, I arrived at these questions because I observed the European Union make a really thoughtful attempt to rein in privacy abuse with the Global Data Protection Regulation, and then our home state of California doing a similar thing, trying to, you know, imitate GDPR. And what I realized was that those things only address the data we put into the system. It doesn't address the 99% of the value that comes from metadata, that comes from the stuff that they acquire on the outside and the stuff they get from tracking us as we, as we browse. Right. And so I realized that if you try to negotiate from the status quo, you wind up at the global data protection regulation, you, you know, a one or two or 3% improvement. So you have to zero base it. You have to take away the thing that exists today. And then that creates the conditions in which you can have a thoughtful negotiation about what kinds of uses are appropriate. Because my observation here is, look, if you want to give your data to your location to Uber so they can come pick you up, God bless. But I don't understand why Uber's allowed to give that to Google. Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm with you hook, line, and sinker. So my, my question is, when you pose it in those terms. Well, you're basically going to blow up their business model, right? You're right. basically saying to all of these guys, I'm sorry, you have to go back to targeting ads. The whole thing of manipulating people to change outcomes, the whole thing. You're going to, you're going to wind up with a lot you're basically going to go from a world of perfect information. In fact, the, Sam, the way I want to do this is I want to set a date. And let's say we're going to make it December 31st of this year. And at that date, they literally have to destroy all of the logs from before. And if anything happens where it includes date from, data from before December 31st of, of 2019, that is a criminal offense, say, punishable by 90 days in jail, right? I mean, you've got to put some teeth in it. And the notion is you can't use the old stuff. You've got to start again. And then we can have a reasonable conversation about what's appropriate and what's not. Mm. And, and I believe that all of this stuff was gained by assertion. And what's interesting, and this is where I really credit Senator Elizabeth Warren, because she looked at the, the last time this happened, which was the turn of the 20th century, when robber barons did to land and, wor and work what these guys did with data. They basically turned it into a tradable commodity, in this case, real estate and, and labor, and they priced it, they controlled it, and with that built massive fortunes, but basically asserting that they were in a position to do that. Teddy Roosevelt comes along and says, no, 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 no. We're not going to allow you to, to roll up the entire economy that way. That's just bad. And breaking those guys up and changing the business models you know, they claimed, oh, you can't do this. It's called social Darwinism. The best people always rise to the top. They used all the same arguments these guys use. 
And yet when it, when that happened, when it was broken up, it unleashed this extraordinary period of growth that was interrupted by the Depression, but for all intents and purposes, went for three generations. And I would like to assert that, that or I'd like to at least hypothesize that that solution could be applied here with at least better results than we're going to get from continuing the status quo. All right. So then the, my final question on the, the personal ethics here. So, as you know, I have a Facebook page. Again, I don't use it in the traditional sense. I, ju- I really just use it as a, a publishing platform. You know, when I release uh, when I release this podcast, we will post it to Facebook, and uh, we may even boost it by you know paying to advertise it because Facebook, though I may have you know something like five hundred thousand people following me on Facebook, my merely posting it will only reach a tiny fraction of my audience. And so, you know, the, the Facebook's brilliant business model is to give you this audience and then charge you to reach them. So in the past, I have, you know, I've advertised on Facebook. If I accept the results of this conversation, which I do, shouldn't I be led to, at minimum, not pay Facebook for anything, therefore not advertise on it, but perhaps just, just delete my account? Why would I be on Facebook if I believe they have behaved this way in the past and are, are going to be behaving this way in the foreseeable future? So, I, I, Sam, I don't have a clean answer for this because my own situation is deeply contaminated. So I have a new book, Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe, which is targeted at people who use Facebook and Instagram. It is demonstrably impossible for me to reach those audiences effectively any other way other than advertising on Facebook and Instagram. And so I continue to do that. I have a Facebook account. I do avoid Google like the plague. I have, I mean, we joked when you and I first got connected, I treat the whole thing like the game of Frogger. I'm the frog, Google's the river, Mm. the other products are the logs, and I hop along and I see how far I can go. And I was at about three weeks when uh, <laughs> you asked me to download Chrome. Right. Oh to, oh, to get into our recording platform. Yeah. It pushed me back into the river, so I have to start again. My, my high score is two months, okay? And anybody can top that. I want to hear from them. But he, here's the thing I would tell you, is that I actually think the most valuable thing we can do is to exercise our political voice. I do not believe we can aggregate enough people one at a time to change the outcome. I think what we really have to do is to use the power of politics because I think we're fundamentally dealing with political problems right here. We have a 2020 election coming up, and it doesn't matter whether you're a a Republican, whether you're a Democrat, whether you're right wing, left wing, middle wing, doesn't make any difference. These issues matter. And in my humble opinion, the framing of this as a matter of right versus wrong works no matter what your politics are. And I would not be shocked to see more or less unanimity by the time we get to the general election about, you know, what the right path here is. And I think the most effective people thing people do is that. I'm doing guerrilla warfare, right? I pay Facebook to use Google, I mean to use the Facebook and Instagram ads because I'm trying to get this message out to those people. And I will readily admit to the ethical uncertainties around that play 
I'm making a choice here. Sam, another place I continued to own my stake in Facebook because I made a choice that I did not want to be accused of trying to badmouth a company mm-hmm. after I'd sold the stock, right. that I'd profited on the way up and I felt it was morally, in my value system, morally more appropriate for me to take the risk. If I'm going to be out there you know, publicly denouncing the company, I was going to take that. And so I sit there and I go, look, we each make our own choices. And I think for some people, deleting the account is the right answer. For other people, there are going to be other ways. But I think for all of us, exercising our franchise, going out and voting, getting our friends to vote, talking to them, I mean, we haven't talked at all about children. You know, this whole issue of the embracing of Google and Facebook in elementary and products for, you know, the parents have to use Facebook groups to organize anything for schools. The kids are all given a Chromebook really early that gets them addicted to, to YouTube and distracts them in the classroom. I mean, we, my book has a lot in it about trying to help people at least understand what the issues are because the story is still unfolding. There's a new piece of reporting every single day on something horrible these guys are doing. Mm. And I very consciously wrote the book as sort of chapter one to put you in a position. It doesn't matter if you know anything about technology or not. It's just, it's designed to, to put you in a good place. And if, you know, my goal in this whole thing in, in, in our conversation here is to, to recognize that we're all imperfect. And I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all thing. I would encourage people, don't put your whole life into any of these products, right? I mean, don't, you know, I, I stopped using Facebook Messenger, right? Because I'm just going, I can't give them everything. And I think this notion, if you're using Google Docs and Gmail, I mean, seriously, it's like you're basically walking naked through the Googleplex. And, mm. and it's not just you being affected. It's everybody who interacts with you. And that, that I find, you know, that to me, those are the things we really have to look at. And so if you ask me what scares me, from a democracy point of view, Facebook still scares me a lot. But in general, Google scares me much more because they have a big impact on democracy, much less well understood. And their impact on everything else is much, much greater because they're so big in 5G smart devices and they're so big in AI. Amazon terrifies me because having been just a monopolist in the old world, they're now making a a conscious move into this surveillance capitalism world with, with Alexa and with their AI products and mm. with their ad services. And so, you know, and I worry a lot about Microsoft because they've sort of been able to dodge, you know, be under the radar. And, you know, some days I wake up and I'm going, what the hell am I doing? I'm one guy. I know a whole bunch of really smart people and we're trying to do this thing. And then I realized that, wait a minute, I couldn't get 10 people in a room three months ago. And now my typical book event, I'm going across the country. Now, you know, I'll be in Portland and Seattle and, and Austin and Nashville and Raleigh and Durham and Toronto and New York City and Miami. I mean, all these different places. I'm going Baltimore, uh, Annapolis, and I'm getting hundreds of people every night. And it's like, huh, it's not, they're not coming here to see me. They're coming here because this is an issue that's on our minds. Yeah. And, and I just happen to be one of the messengers. And so all I know is we can win this thing. I'm really optimistic. And what's really cool is that this is a problem so big that the business opportunity of fixing it is going to re-energize our entrepreneurial economy like nothing has in 25 years. And it's going to be amazing because we need to have versions of all of this functionality that doesn't hurt anybody. Mm. 
Yeah, we, we can move fast and break things, including Facebook. Well, I'm hoping that the, the, the next step is to move a little slower and not break anything, <laughs> right? Because I think what it's really about is, is kind of move slower and repair things. Yeah. And, and you know, I just think that these, these are brilliant people, okay? And I don't think they're bad people, but I do think that the culture they operate in is really deeply, deeply flawed. I mean, both morally flawed, ethically flawed, and, and quite obviously socially flawed. And, you know, I just wish that they could find somebody to get the message through. Because I think Mark and Cheryl and Larry and Sergey are one good night's sleep away from the epiphany where they realize that, wait a minute, they can't do 1% as much good with a foundation as they could by fixing the things they created. Right. And that's what I really wish for all of them. It's like, guys, get a good night's sleep. Have the epiphany. Be the hero in your own story. Nice. Well, that's a great place to end. Uh, listen, Roger, it's been fascinating. And uh, you are the hero in your own story. And uh, I'm, I'm wishing you a very successful book tour this time around. So get sleep yourself because I know what a book tour looks like and it can be a, a beatdown. Well, Sam, you, you have no idea how much you inspire me and how much you have influenced me over the years with your writing, with the podcast. And it is such a great privilege just to be able to interact with you this way. And, you know, I'm still, I'm still early in the learning curve. And I, everywhere I go, I meet people who will make me smarter. And all I can tell you is, you know, you're one, you were one of the first, and every day you're one of the most influential. So thank you for this. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast, or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, like my Ask Me Anything episodes, as well as the bonus questions from many of these interviews. You'll also get advanced tickets to my live events. You'll find all of these things and more at samharris.org. And thank you for supporting the show. Listeners like you make it possible.